It's Adrian Lawrence. Welcome in to TYT's The Conversation. And today I am bringing you Radley Balco. He's a columnist who covers criminal justice, drug war, and civil liberties for the Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Radley. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so you recently wrote a piece for The Intercept titled Big Trouble in Little Rock. A reformist black police chief faces an uprising of the old guard. Tell us about what the controversy is there. Yeah, so this was a um, police chief, uh, Keith Humphrey, who had been appointed by the first black elected mayor of Little Rock since Reconstruction. Uh, and the mayor had run on a police reform platform and had appointed Humphrey to implement that platform. And since uh, Humphrey's appointment, uh, he's basically been subject to just kind of a relentless campaign um, of harassment, of um, uh, baseless accusations, lawsuits. Uh, you know, uh, a um, a letter by ten of the thirteen members of, a of his command staff, sort of saying that they no longer have confidence in his leadership, uh, and so the the city is is you know long been sort of run by the uh, FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police, which is the police union, um, and you know they don't like change, they don't want reform, uh, and the city has the the FOP has long been sort of seen as been run by white officers and by sort of a small clique of officers and their family and friends. Um, black officers I talked to, and I interviewed over 20 for this this article, uh, you know, told me basically that they the 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 reason the entire reason there's a black police union, a separate black police union, is that they feel that they're not being represented by the FOP. Black officers who speak out uh, about police abuse, racial profiling, uh, tend to be passed over promotions, they tend to be subject to discipline, opened up to investigations. So basically, you know, the article it's about one particular police chief in one particular city. Uh, but we've seen this pattern repeated over and over across the country. Uh, anytime a reformist police chief takes over, and particularly a black reformist chief, we see a lot of backlash from the traditional police unions. Absolutely, and that's something that makes it very difficult in terms of uh, trying to achieve that true balance. Uh, when they say in the justice system, when you know people are really opposed to any kind of progress, uh, and I'm sure with this individual situation down here in Little Rock, essentially getting that vote of no confidence from what I think you said 11 of 13 of those yeah. uh, involved. How How is this being, how is this individual handling this? So, so one of the issues in Little Rock is that the union represents, in most cities the police union represents um, uh, lower ranking officers, not supervisory officers. And in Little Rock, for collective bargaining purposes, the union represents sergeants and belower and lower. but. Anybody up to the chief, excluding the chief, uh, can be a member of the union and get union representation when they're if they're disciplined or if they're subject to any sort of complaint. And so what's happened is, you know, when Humphrey took over, two of the three assistant chiefs in Little Rock at the time had applied for his job. So now he has to try to run this department with two of his three direct subordinates uh, already sort of mad at him because they wanted the position that he was eventually given. And then, you know, he's also an outsider and he's coming into a city that has an entrenched police culture. It has a very powerful police union. And the union itself has a lot of powerful uh, allies throughout city and state government. And so trying to bring a, uh, a, a you know, a, a series of policy reforms and changes to to upset that culture is going to be really difficult in any situation. But it's especially difficult if you can't bring in your own command staff, people who support your goals and policies to help you implement them. 
Well, it really kind of sounds like uh, what Humphrey's set up for failure because you know you're absolutely right. What is he going to be able to achieve if his immediate subordinates are shady about the fact that they didn't get the job? They're upset about it, and then on top of that, you don't have people who support you and support your vision. Uh, why did they choose an outsider? Well, because I because I think the mayor specifically ran on a reform platform. He wanted to change the city. You know, I can tell you that one investigation I did for the Washington Post that became an issue during the campaign is that the Little Rock Police Department was conducting illegal drug raids. They were these raids were not constitutional under Supreme Court precedent. It's a little bit complicated, but basically, to to do a no knock drug raid, you have to show that a specific suspect presents a threat to police or a threat to destroy evidence, and there has to be specific evidence about that particular suspect. You can't just say all drug suspects are a threat to police officer safety. And that's what they were doing. And then they were conducting these raids in an extraordinarily violent manner. They were using explosives to literally blow doors off of their hinges. And you know, in some cases there were children in the house. In some cases they got the wrong house. And so the mayor specifically ran on a platform of changing this and changing other aspects of police culture. There were a lot of a rash of, of police shootings in Little Rock. The, the relationship between the Little Rock Police Department and the black community in the city was dismal. Uh, and so the mayor thought that you know he had to bring in somebody from the outside in order to change that culture. That bringing, promoting some, promoting from within uh, when you have a culture that that's entrenched wasn't going to bring change. Yeah, no, um, and I definitely think that the mayor is correct. It's just a matter of the fact that you just can't bring in one person at the top and expect there to be sufficient trickle down. Um, uh, when Humphreys came in, did do you know whether he decided to do a shakeup in terms of reevaluating who on staff should remain and who should maybe find employment elsewhere? Well, that's so. So that's the problem is that it's very difficult to do in Little Rock because uh, every officer in the department, except the chief, has union representation if they want it. So. Um, you, you can't just, uh, unlike in other cities, you can't just fire uh, someone, a subordinate, because they don't agree with your policy or because they uh, oppose your policy. You have to uh, have, you know, good reason. The other thing that's happening in Little Rock is that it's a department that's really kind of run by litigation. Uh, policing experts I talked to for this article told me they couldn't think of any other department where litigation played such a strong role in personnel and policy decisions. And so. What's happened in Little Rock is a police officer will get away with some kind of misconduct or police abuse, right? They'll do it, they'll get investigated and they'll be cleared. And then five or 10 years later, another police officer will commit the same kind of misconduct and get fired. But they'll be able to sue and go to court and say, well, you know what? This officer did the same thing I did and they weren't punished. And because that officer was say white or black and I'm a different skin color or they're male and I'm female or they're gay and I'm straight. Uh, for, me, for you to punish me and not them is, is a form of discrimination. Uh, and so it becomes this kind of race to the bottom for bad behavior. As long as you can find, if you're an officer who's committed misconduct, as long as you can find some incident of an officer who did something similar and got away with it, uh, you can basically get away with it as well. Yes, uh, it's interesting you say that because that's uh, an observation. As a litigator myself, it's an observation that I make in my book where I explain to people to pay attention to essentially misconduct that's going around in the workplace uh, just in case uh, you're accused of doing something either someone else did or just in case you're accused of doing something that's on a lower level than what someone else did. Uh, it'll position you to be able to either sue or get a nice severance or maybe just keep your job in the end uh, if you have that comparison there. But um, you know, when we think about that, it's 
seems to be maybe not that big of a deal in just basic office type workplaces. But when it's a police force, it can be very, very detrimental to the community around you by keeping individuals in positions of power who should not be there because they are breaching several liberties or just breaking the law altogether. And I heard you say initially that there were individuals on the force, which is the reason they have the separate black police union because they're concerned about racial profiling. Is this something that the officers themselves are even experiencing? from fellow officers? Yeah, so there, there's a long history among the black officers I talked to say there's this long history of black officers getting passed over promotions for promotions, black officers not getting the same opportunity for training and career building. And this is particularly true if you're an officer who draws attention to misconduct or racial profiling or police abuse or misuse of force. Um, you know, as one black officer put it to me, um, as long as you're blue before you're black, you can sort of be okay in Little Rock. But as soon as you start speaking out on racial issues, um, you know, you become targeted by the police union. And that's why the black police union exists to sort of counteract that. Um, but the same token, you know, black officers I talked to said, well, they have to put up with, you know, racist jokes, racist comments, um, this kind of discrimination when it comes to promotion. Um, if they bring up racism, if they talk about racism, if they even you know mention sort of racial profiling, they get subject to complaints from white officers for quote unquote reverse discrimination. So, for example, one supervisor, black officer who's been there for a long time, told me that she once referred to a specialty division in the department as Lily White because you know this was a very sought after department. Everybody wanted to be transferred to this department, but only white officers really were transferred. And it was all white at the time she said it, but because she said the term really white in front of white officers, she herself was subject to a reverse discrimination complaint for using that term. Oh my God. Wow, this sounds like an extraordinarily toxic culture. And I'm guessing this is something that's definitely permeating out into the community. Because as you said, using explosives to bust open doors, you know, essentially taking these measures that end up violating individual civil liberties. So I guess when it comes to maybe finding some kind of common ground or figuring out what the next steps are, where are things going? It's tough to say in Little Rock. I mean, you know, one thing we we didn't get into, but I think is is important to mention is there is definitely a racial racist component to this campaign against Humphrey. Um, he's been subject to claims of sexual harassment by white female uh, officers and employees at the department, which uh, don't really stand up to scrutiny. In fact, the city investigated and found that there was no sexual harassment. Uh, and there is this kind of playbook of right when you want to bring down a powerful uh, black man uh, in in the South, you accuse him of sort of sexual impropriety with white women. And we've seen that with Humphrey. We've seen that with the, with the previous black police chief in Little Rock. Uh, the first black chief in 2000 uh, was subject to a similar sort of rumor campaign. Uh, you know. Uh, where do we go from here? That's a good question. Um, you know, so far the mayor has stood by Humphrey uh, and has withstood, you know, calls to fire him or to force him to resign. Uh, Humphrey has been able to implement a lot of his policies, but you know, it really kind of depends. The mayor loses his reelection bid. Uh, I think it's safe to say that uh, Humphrey won't be chief anymore, and the city will probably go back to the way it was before. That is truly, truly unfortunate. Uh, hopefully people will follow the story and uh, lend their support any way they can. If they wanna learn more, where can they find information uh, and also your incredible journalism uh, via social media? Uh, well, I'm at Twitter, Twitter at RadleyBalco.com. The article itself is at The Intercept. Uh, and then I also write a weekly column uh, on issues like these for the Washington Post.
Fantastic, and for all those out there, this article is titled Big Trouble in Little Rock, a reformist black police chief faces an uprising of the old guard. Thank you so much for joining us, Radley Balco. My pleasure, thanks for having me. Welcome back, it's TYT's The Conversation and it is Adrian Lawrence. And this time I bring you a progressive congressional candidate, Imani Oakley. Thank you so much for joining us, Imani. Thank you for having me. Yes, so you are a candidate for New Jersey's 10th district. And I know you're challenging Representative Donald Payne Jr. Now, right. I, I wanna know what distinguishes you from your current opposition? Well, number one, I'll actually show up to work. Um, Donald Payne actually has the third lowest attendance rate out of all Democrats and one of the lowest attendance rates out of both Republicans and Democrats. So he barely even shows up to work, that's number one. And then when it comes to issues that actually matter, I will also make sure I'm constantly on the right side of history. Donald Payne Jr. has a terrible record when it comes to LGBTQ plus rights. And in fact, in 2012, in an interview, he was asked, um, do you support gay marriage? And his response was, I'd have to think about that. I can't answer that at this time. Uh, this year alone, there were about 16 bills on the floor of Congress that dealt with LGBTQ plus rights, including a bill to ban the horrendous practice of conversion therapy. And until my campaign came out and publicly criticized my opponent for not having signed on to any of them, he was not signed on to one of them. When Trump Republican Jeff Van Drew, as well as other members of the Jersey delegation were all signed on to at least two or three of them. Um, similarly, his record with regards to uh, immigrants rights is also very abysmal. He continued to vote when Jersey had our ICE facilities up and running. He continued to vote to bring federal funding to those facilities, despite being asked specifically to stop voting to do that by immigrants rights groups. And also he's very inconsistent when it comes to his votes on equal pay. Some years he'll vote for equal pay for black women and brown women, other years he won't. It's really just, it's really sad because a district like this that honestly has so much need. As, as of 2019, we were number one in the nation for foreclosures. We have some of the highest rates of childhood asthma in the nation. We have a severe issue with lead in our drinking water, with lead in the, in the paint of old homes and apartment buildings. This district deserves somebody who will show up. And I will absolutely be the, that person. I have worked in government and politics on the federal, statewide, and grassroots levels. I was a political organizer here in New Jersey for years. So I not only know the issues, but I know exactly what the people need in order to fix them. All right, well, it definitely sounds like uh, the individuals uh, who are citizens of New Jersey's 10th district, that they do have a lot of needs to be fulfilled and that they're not necessarily getting those things done. Because uh, yeah, you did come out of the gate pretty strong about Donald Payne Jr. It sounds like he's just not here to do his job, really. No, absolutely not. And you know, that's what tends to happen when somebody inherits the seat. Um, so his father actually held the seat before him. Mm -hmm. And it was basically a coronation when his father, you know, unfortunately passed. It was basically a coronation and it was just like, oh, you will have this seat. And when people get seats in that manner, they don't respect the office, they don't respect the job. They don't respect the fact that you have to, sh this isn't your birthright. Like you have to show up and actually do work for people in Washington. Um, and so, you know, it's it's typical that we see that with establishment corporate dams where they inherit a seat, they keep it warm, and they are so entitled to it 
that they just feel as though they don't have to show up to work. But um, you're going to find out very soon that assuming that was a, a big mistake on his part. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, hopefully he'll find something that speaks more to his skill set. Uh, but let's talk about yours because I know you're a longtime progressive activist and you are now truly getting into the game to make change for New Jersey's 10th district. So I'd love to know what are maybe two or three things that are just key issues that you will be addressing when you may win this uh, election. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So number one are environmental issues. You know, in this area, despite the thing, I mean, other than the things that I just mentioned, you know, the highest rates of childhood asthma, the lead in the water. Recently, we got hit really, really hard by Hurricane Ida. We had extreme amounts of flooding here. And a big issue with that is not only is obviously our weather getting more extreme due to climate change, but also we do not have infrastructure that is prepared to one, lead us into a green future, and two, also just kind of kill some of the hard impacts that we're seeing now due to heavy climate change. Um, so environment is going to be key. I am definitely an advocate of a Green New Deal and making sure that we give people uh, well-paying, union-backed jobs to help change our infrastructure and make it green, especially in an area like this. We're like an old industrialized area. So with that, you get the old piping, you get those old bridges, you get that type of the old infrastructure that really wasn't built with um, you know, protecting people from flooding or other disasters in mind. And it's time we fix that. Uh, climate change is here, it's real, and it's getting scarier and scarier. The house that I'm speaking to you from right now, I've actually lived in for about 27 years of my life, um, really all of my life except for four years where I had to move out because of some issues surrounding foreclosure and my home. Um, but during that time, my basement has never flooded. Okay, mind you, nearly 30 years in one resident, and we've had heavy rainstorms. I mean, we've had snowstorms, all of that. My basement has not flooded once. This year, Hurricane Ida, my basement flooded for the first time. Climate change is here and it's getting more and more drastic. So I am certainly an advocate of a Green New Deal and environmental issues will be very high on my priority list. Uh, number two is housing. Again, I mentioned earlier, as of 2019, we were number one in the nation for foreclosures mostly affecting older black and brown homeowners. Me and my family nearly lost my childhood home to foreclosure. Um, it is a real, real issue, housing stability in this area. And then also you have, not only do you have you know, the homeownership and foreclosure issue, but you have constantly rising rent. Uh, we're an area that's very, very close in proximity to New York. And there are a lot of gentrification happening in uh, the, the cities in the area, such as Newark and and Jersey City and others. And it's really pushing people either you know, out of their neighborhoods or onto the street. And it's, it's really, really concerning. And so housing will be another really, really huge one on my list. You know, One thing that most folks don't know about New Jersey is that we have the most corrupt ballot design in the entire nation. Uh, it's called the ballot line. And in that ballot line, basically establishment Dems are placed on one long column. Uh, with the most popular name at the top. So you'll have like Joe Biden at the top, Cory Booker, and then on down. And what this does is it helps boost down ballot establishment Dems who are running against real progressive, true challengers. But it tricks the voter psychology into voting straight for that ballot column and voting straight down it. We are literally the only state in the country 
that uses this ballot design. Um, so it's that in conjunction with all of the other voting rights issues that we're seeing across the country right now. I want to be able to add my voice to the fight to make sure we're upholding our democracy and protecting folks' right to vote. And if we don't have that, I mean, we, we really don't have anything. Yeah, that definitely is very true. And I think we're finding that out even more so as we see these continued attacks on voting rights. And mm-hmm. so uh, when it comes to making change and looking at the current the current hurdles, because uh, I know you just addressed the three things that really you're gonna come through uh, the door day one and do your best to change. But for the existing hurdles in the infrastructure, uh, what do you really anticipate? Oh, well, I mean, we'll see. The winter's coming. Um, so, you know, we're going to have to see what holds up and what doesn't. Um, and then if we have excess rain when it comes springtime, you know, we'll also have to see what's going on with that flooding. Because, you know, fixing the sewage and the lead in the pipe issue, that's a multi billion dollar issue, right? And so far, you know, the bulk of that money has come from municipal and state. Um, and Donald Payne has decided since he has a challenger to try and bring some money to it finally. Um, but you know, it's really going to take somebody fighting to get those federal dollars into the district so those pipes can be replaced. That's really, really going to be very crucial. And then also fighting for a Green New Deal in the sense where we can have federal jobs, a federal job guarantee with well-paid jobs, union-backed jobs for those for not only uh, fixing things like the sewage system, but also fixing railways, um, fixing bridges, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll see, I mean, the winter is here. And then after that, we'll have obviously the heavy rainfall that typically comes with spring. Um, But, you know, I mean, climate change is really, really getting worse and worse and we really have to do something about it. And it's no longer, I mean, it never really was, but especially now we cannot slap on just politics to this anymore. I mean, it can't be that it's like, oh, the leftists want this really good thing we can wait for. We can uh, be incrementalist and do this slowly because climate change is not moving slowly. It's not going to wait for us to kind of come around politically. We need to move on it now. Absolutely, and that is something that definitely needs to be addressed. And I know at the federal level, there is at least talk of, hey, bringing things up to speed, at least when it comes to infrastructure and to make those necessary changes so that you can bring a lot of the buildings and whatnot up to date to bring people into cleaner living. And that's something that's very important, I would imagine, for you, given that you live in the garden state and that's what you wanna serve. Mm -hmm. So at least keeping that model alive would be great. But in terms of um, what you really want people to know out there, when they hear about you, they think about voting for you, what is it that you want to resonate with them when they go into the ballot box? That not only do we in District 10 in New Jersey deserve better, but we can actually have better. You know, New Jersey has a Tammany Hall machine style of politics where we have these party bosses who really truly exploit uh, neighborhoods of color, working class neighborhoods. And people have, you know, gotten so down about that that they feel it's kind of impossible to overcome. And I want people to know it absolutely is not impossible. I've already outraised my opponent two to one. I've gotten endorsements from national organizations or organizations in the district, sitting elected officials activists, nonprofit leaders, we really, really can do this. We do not have to sit here and allow our neighborhoods to be treated as financial and political playgrounds. We can win and we're gonna win June 7th, 2022. All right, thank you so much for joining us. Amani, if people want to support your campaign, where can they find more information? 
They can go to my website at Oakley for that's F-O-R congress.com. You can check out more about me, my background and my platform. You can also follow me on all social media at Imani Oakley NJ10. Thanks so much. Imani Oakley, progressive congressional candidate for New Jersey's 10th district. Thank you so much. Thank you.